This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. Excited, determined, hopeful, disappointed, frustrated, sad, shocked, and numb. That is the cycle of emotions that every couple goes through every month when they're trying to have a baby but they're not conceiving. Every doctor appointment, procedure, and letdown, that's the emotional cycle that would repeat itself. Every couple who's forced off the highway of planned pregnancy to be shoved into the lonely exit ramp of infertility sadly knows this cycle all too well. Chrissy Lee and Aaron Michael Kahn are just one such couple. They started off talking about what a wonderful thing it would be to make a little mini version of themselves. They had discussions about what the baby was going to look like and what kind of parents they were going to be. They even talked about how easy it was going to be to conceive and have a baby. But month by month by month, it didn't happen, and they got more and more discouraged. They saw doctors who discovered that each of them had a physical problem. They tried IVF. They even tried adopting, and nothing worked. Throughout all of it, though, they somehow managed to keep their sense of humor. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Chrissy and Aaron about their remarkable, sometimes sad, but always inspiring journey. A journey they're still very much on and have no intention of quitting. And once you hear their story, neither will you. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Chrissy Lee Kahn and Aaron Michael Kahn, who are a couple and the co-authors of a book called Navigating the Road of Infertility. Chrissy Lee, Aaron Michael, hi there. Thanks for joining us. Hi. hi. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's talk a little bit about, I think, to start with, your overall experience with the whole thing of infertility. We're going to get into some of the specifics, but just in reading the book, you did not have an easy path towards <laughs> fulfilling no. your goal of having children. And, I mean, there, no. there were fertility treatments and surgeries and, and failed yeah. foster care adoptions and things. I, why, I guess, so we'll start off with something that probably should come in the middle, but why didn't you just give up? You know, it's not really in my nature to give up. I've kind of always been a I set a goal. I'm going to achieve it. I'll do the work to go into it. So just not who I am. Um, and we really want to be parents no yep. matter what. I, and, you know, if I, if that was my, in my nature, I wouldn't have ever become a Marine. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that kind of requires you not give up. Uh, so it, that's just, generally speaking, that's not who we are. We, we persevere. 
And it was again. Let's let's talk about some some of the details since you're so open about talking to these things. I think it's 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 wonderful sure. that you are because there are so many people out there I think who struggle with some of the issues that that you've struggled with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, so, Armin. It's actually uh, seven point three million American women struggle with this. And they're partners, presumably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One in eight couples. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. I think it's important that we make sure that everybody knows this is something that I, I talk about in the work that I do with fathers, that when it comes to infertility, we have this idea, and it's probably because so many fertility doctors are OBGYNs, that it's a, a women's issue. And a large right. portion of the time, probably, I mean, some people are saying it's 40% women, 40% the guy, and then 20% are just kind of unexplained. But whatever yeah. it is, whatever the detail, you know, the exact statistics are, which are impossible to come by, but <laughs> I think, you know, there are a lot of guys who are who need to be the ones who are getting the help. Definitely. Yeah. And it's it's very, very upsetting. You feel really ashamed when your body doesn't work the way you want to. And like you said, often the male is overlooked. But, you know, Aaron's my partner. He's my best friend. And this affected both of us. I mean, he really jumped in when he found out he had the problem. And I had the problem. He was willing to have surgery. You know, when it looks like there was no chance, he was willing to jump in and adopt. Um, it's just been really, I've been really blessed to have such an amazing partner who's also willing to be so open and share his voice about the perspective of infertility. Well, particularly as a Marine. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, say, I say that being one myself. And, oh. you know, this is, you know, weakness is, is not something that, you talk about a lot. I mean, do you think that that, that factored in for you that, I mean, um, that, that how to, to, to overcome that particular thing? Because it's so, you know, returning veterans don't want to talk about PTSD. They don't want to talk about other other issues where they might seem or any kind of you know, sexual dysfunction, for example, which often goes along with with uh, returning combat veterans. You know, people don't want to talk yeah, about that. Um, no. And, and, and I, I noticed that uh, there are a whole lot of guys. Um, who I served with who didn't want to talk about any of that stuff and they felt like it was kind of taboo. And as far as I was concerned, it was, um, you, you know, if, if you don't talk about it, then it doesn't get healed. It doesn't get solved. It, it just, you know, gets gets left by the wayside and everybody just sits there mired in their own issues. And I feel like that being open about it and talking about it, like actually starts to heal the wound. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Where, sure. how how did the the problem manifest itself, or how did you first realize that there was an issue? So about a little less than a year in, we decided we were after we were married, we decided we were going to have kids, and you know, of course, I am Miss like research triple A personality. So after six months of trying, and we weren't getting anywhere. Um, some of my friends said I should really ask my doctor to have a sonogram. And my gynecologist was very reluctant, um, but I finally got the sonogram and found out I had a coconut-sized uterine fibroid tumor. And um, that same day, she examined Aaron because he also has her as a doctor, and he had varicocele. Which, which essentially means that I had uh, varicose veins uh, in my testicles that... Uh, pretty much the only uh, side effect 
you would say is um, uh, infertility. Mm-hmm. That's literally the only issue that comes from that. And so you would never know <laughs> until you were actually trying. Yes, Absolutely. exactly. That's exactly it. So. And so we thought the surgery would fix the issue, and you know, sadly. With Vericocele, even though when Aaron was 26, when he was diagnosed with it, um, surgery may repair and increase motility, but often it doesn't because the damage has already been done. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so just, just for those who don't know, motility is the movement of the sperm, right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. Okay, because yeah. there, there are several factors. There's like how many there are. And then there's yeah. the movement, and then how healthy they are, because uh, right, you know quality of that. There's, right. there's the sperm count, and then the sperm uh, motility. So we have uh, we, we were the, low the amount, on both. We were low on both. It was the uh, amount, and then how well they moved once they got to where they needed to be. Okay, so to the coconut size fibroid, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing you had that out. I did. So it was like a um, it was like a cesarean surgery, except instead of a baby, I had the tumor removed, and oh. um, yeah, it was it was very painful, <clears throat> and it was actually kind of a rare case. So you know, in the book, the scenes where I had to go for my testing, I highlight with my humor as we both do throughout the thing because I really felt like if anybody ever watched Friends with Ross when he had that that strange mole. The doctors would come in and be like, "Oh wow, wow, that's interesting," <laughs> and so it really, um, it really was quite an experience. And I, silly, silly me, I thought once it was out, it would be no problem to get pregnant. But that didn't happen. Nope. No, that uh, didn't happen. Okay. And actually, at my my post checkup, my fertility specialist who did the surgery told me that we had, uh, we, it was highly unlikely we would ever conceive on our own, and we only had a 35% chance at IVF, which was something we had not considered. At all. We actually <laughs> said we weren't going to do it. Yeah. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, it was, it's, it's really hard, the emotions you go through. I mean, I guess we were really, we were really kind of proud, and, and we thought, no, we want to conceive on our own. And then our backup option was, you know, if we can't conceive, maybe we're not meant to. Maybe we're supposed to adopt. You know, we're both in education. And so we know how many kids are in the foster care system. And we just really thought then maybe that's what we were supposed to do and went that route. Okay. I mean, that, that's, that's a very uh, common thing. I mean, did you have family pressure on you at this point? Or at any point? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you always have family yeah, pressure. Yeah, you, you always have family pressure. Um, and, and societal pressure after you're married. I, it's, it's like, when are you going to have kids? I definitely think it was more societal than it was familial. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was definitely pressure from uh, multiple sides. You know, it's just it's always that question of, oh, you've been married for so many years and you're not, you're not pregnant yet? You haven't had a kid? What's, uh, what's going on? And it's it's like it's always like such a weird question to answer. It's just like why why do you care? Why do you want to know? <laughs> well, it, it's it's the same sort of lack of boundaries that gets people in in line at the grocery store to come up and and rub a pregnant woman's yeah. belly. Yeah, you know, it's Definitely. like it's somehow having kids is just 
is public information, and and it's right. it's okay right. to ask ridiculous questions. And yeah. on the flip side, it was interesting when we said we wanted to foster to adopt to see the reaction of family members, um, because you know it, it's a little different. And my mom had a really hard time with um, accepting that option from us. Yeah, and then my mom, who's like a robot, uh, <laughs> uh, essentially was just like, "Oh, that sounds great." And it was just, it was weird. Yeah. Talking with Chrissy Lee Kahn and Aaron Kahn, Aaron Michael Kahn. They're the authors together of Navigating the Road of Infertility. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Chrissy Lee and Aaron Michael. If you're pregnant and you smoke, you need to know that your risk of your baby being born too small is one and a half to three and a half times greater. By quitting now, your baby has a better chance to be born at a normal weight and to have healthy lungs. But it's also important for you to stay smoke-free after your baby's born. For free materials on quitting or to speak to a quit coach, call the National Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Public Health Service. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, and I'm speaking with Chrissy Lee Kahn and Aaron Michael Kahn, the authors together of Navigating the Road of Infertility. So I want to get back on the road to, to or not to, the road of infertility. <laughs> and so you you did IVF, though, anyway, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um, we, we started, it took us uh, 29 hours to become foster care parents, along with a lot of other red tape. And then we got the girls we hoped to foster to adopt. Um, we signed up as a pre-adoptive resource because we didn't want to entangle any of the fostering within the system. But unfortunately, we didn't realize how broken the system was. So midway through it, we really started to consider going with IVF. Okay. All right. So, And I'm just curious about that. I've spoken with a lot of, of guys as I, the work that I'm doing with dads who have sure. been through adoption, and it's not only the, the guys, that this happens with mothers as well, that there can be a, a sense of, of failure, I guess, that, you know, that things didn't work out the way that we wanted them to work, kind of what you were talking about, Chrissy, that, yeah. if, that you know, if you can't do it right, you're not going to do it at all sort of thing. That, right. And, and how, did, how did you deal with that? It sounds like one of the, one of the mothers was probably on that same train, of not not mm-hmm. looking at that as being the the best option. Yeah, I mean, we um, a lot of emotions. I think giving yourself permission to feel those emotions. Um, when it was first brought up, I totally they give you the whole packet of information, and I totally just threw it across the room. That cute little baby folder, and you know, just really processing together. Um, I mean, Aaron and I really have worked on our communication. You know. We do have a therapist we talk to from time to time if we need to who really helps as an outside perspective. But it's really important to process those emotions before you go to the next step. So we were fully committed to foster care when we got to that point. And but I want to get to the foster care, but I want to do, talk, talk a little bit more about the IVF part. How did that go, and, yeah. and how did, what, what were your experiences there, and, and what did you learn from that? a lot of experiences um i'm happy that we got to it after the foster care because 
at that point, I mean, our our fertility specialists, they are like family to us. It's a very small fertility center. And because Dr. Bath had done my surgery, um, when I went to her to follow up and told her everything we had been through through foster care, it was very refreshing, the steps of IVF, the timeline, knowing what to expect until we got the mountain of medication. And the needles. And the needles delivered to us. <laughs> And it was like calculus, trying to follow this medication regimen, which thankfully Aaron had parents those medical in the medical profession, and he has become a rock star with administering those needles. It, it, it became a lot of, uh, it was, it, I, I feel like I'm an honorary uh, RN at, at this <laughs> point, um, just given the amount of shots I've administered uh, in, in its it's a lot because and I've spoken to a, a bunch of different couples that have gone through this aspect of uh, IVF. Um, and there are some couples where in this, like, the guy is just like, no, I definitely am going to give the shot. And there are others where the guy is just like, oh, I'm absolutely not doing that. And they just, like, are like, no, you handle that. You're, you're fine. Um, uh, but I, I'm on the, the side of you know, the guy handles the shots. The, you know, the wife has to handle so much more. So just like at least I can take on this burden, um, but you know, to each their own mm-hmm. uh, path. Right. Yeah, got to take us a little bit through the shot thing because I think that's something that most people, when they hear about IVF, you just imagine, you know, a, a, a sperm sample coming in somehow that we don't want to <laughs> ask about, and and that that just right. gets mixed together in a test tube someplace. Um, it but, takes you so long to get to that point. Yeah, it, that's that's like so far down the road because what happens is is that you have to have the the hormone shots, which is literally to stimulate the eggs. So it's all about getting the eggs ready. So right. first, the woman has to be on birth control pills to regulate her cycle, and then you go into the the shot regimen to stimulate the eggs. So it was three shots a day along with pills for our first round. And then the woman has to have the egg retrieval surgery. So you have to go under anesthesia. And at that time, the guy then gives his sample. And then depending on the quality of the egg, so you, a woman, you could have 15 follicles and which are holding the eggs in. And then after they retrieve them, sometimes they only come out with seven. And sometimes they only come out with two. So our first round, really, we were so excited, and then it tanked. Like, almost all of our embryos um, didn't make it overnight. This just sounds like a complete horror story, the whole thing. Yeah. Right. So we actually did a video to document our second round, um, and we kind of, you know, aligned it to Game of Thrones because that's how it felt. It's just like everything is just getting killed off. Yes. Did... Anybody have any sort of an explanation for that? Not really. And and from what we understand, like they, there there is still so little that we know about the uh, female re- reproductive or, uh, organ that is the uterus. It's just like it's it's kind of it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's, so the really it's the triangle of, of human beings. The more rounds of IVF you do, the more they start to know your body. So our second round. They did a different um, medication regimen, and it actually took, and we be, we got better quality eggs, and we did become pregnant on our second round. It just unfortunately ended in a miscarriage. 
and they're still not entirely sure as to why. So are you going to do another one? Well, well, actually, um, today, funny you ask, we had one frozen embryo that was left over, and that was it. That was going to be it. We got it implanted last Saturday, and today is my birthday, and we took three tests today, and we are pregnant. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, that, we hope it makes, our, the little one makes it. That, that's, that's the hope. This is the first step. Yeah. Yep. All right, so l- let me let me get back a little bit, because you mentioned the fostering to adopt, which I, th- I think is, yeah. is sure. something that a lot of people talk about, and you did it in a slightly different order, that that might yeah. have been yeah. the last step. You did the IVF last, but you did not have a good experience with that, and it sounded like you had oh. you had a couple of, of kids that, that you were getting quite attached to, and then they're gone. Yeah. So uh, it was very, I am an assistant principal in an elementary school, so I advocate for students with disabilities. Um, From the beginning of this, we told our our agency, we are a pre-adoptive resource. We want to adopt these kids. We're not just housing them for a few weeks or months. And then, and then taking the check and then just, like, letting them go off somewhere so else. So we should have only been given a case where parental rights were already terminated. And so there would be no chance of kids going back home. Um, and that's what we were told when we got the call for these two beautiful, amazing girls, five and seven. Um, and so we were told their grandparents had them. They were terminating their, their rights that Monday. And we jumped on it. So within three days, they moved in. By the end of the weekend, they were calling us mommy and daddy. Um, now, they both had disabilities, so the little one had been abused by her biological mother, had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so it was a lot of work, but we already loved them. Um, three weeks after that, we were told the mother was out of jail, and the plan was for reunification with her, which... The little one's therapist um, did not want her to be exposed to visits. She hadn't seen her mother in two years. Vehemently, it was opposed to. Right. So fast forward a couple months, and um, the little one's mental state is deteriorating to the point where she needed a um, mental health facility, like a, a day program, because the State Department was forcing them to have visitation with their biological mother, even though her psychiatrist and her therapist said, and, and lawyers. said this needs to stop. And so me being an advocate, I wasn't okay with that, so I took it to the highest level of the State Department. Wow. Yeah. This just gets more and more depressing and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. It does. And and you would think, I guess I was very naive and I thought maybe the head of the program, you know, really once she found out um, what was happening would would move to act. But instead, I learned that there's a little kickback that the state gets every time a child in foster care is reunited with their biological parent. And the head of uh, the department we were working with was kind of like the inventor of this uh, little system. So she really, um, you know, she said basically in our meeting, it's like we went on four dates and called a caterer and we shouldn't have loved them. And, you know, we unfortunately decided we couldn't do that anymore. And sadly, um, 
you know, they didn't even allow us to say goodbye to them. Our agency ripped them out of our care on a visit. And um, fast forward three months later, and we found out the little one actually was institutionalized. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah. Chrissy Lee Kahn and Aaron Michael Kahn are the authors of Navigating the Road of Infertility. It's, I, mean, I want to say depressing, but it, and there are, are elements of that, and there are elements of, of tear-jerking in here, but I think ultimately it's, it's an inspirational story. You guys are amazing that you're still hanging in there. It's just uh, unbelievable. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Today's Ask Mr. Dad segment is very apropos to today's show. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I are having trouble conceiving. After putting us through months of testing, the fertility doctor we're seeing says that the problem is on my end. I'm devastated. I just assumed that women were the ones who had fertility problems, and I feel like a complete failure, as if I'm not a man anymore. What can I do? Are there vitamins or supplements I can take or behaviors I can do or stop doing? The first thing to do right now is lighten up on yourself. A lot of people think of fertility issues as affecting only women, but they are wrong. That misconception, so to speak, may be aggravated by the fact that most fertility doctors are OBGYNs. The truth is that about 40% of fertility problems are the woman's, 40% are the man's, and the remaining 20% are simply what they call unexplained. Infertile women are often anxious, stressed, depressed, and feel like failures as women and partners. For men, there's a lot of macho tied up in being able to get a woman pregnant. Many new dads I've interviewed say they experienced a sense of vitality and virility and pride when the pregnancy test came back positive. It was like a confirmation that everything was in working order, which comes as quite a relief to a lot of guys. Men who can't impregnate their partner have many of the same feelings that women do, and that you do. As far as vitamins and supplements, there are plenty of scams out there, so my advice is to stay away from the Internet and be very, very careful. That said, some studies have linked vitamin C, B vitamins, especially B12, and zinc with increased sperm counts. But check with the fertility doctor before you start popping any pills. As far as behaviors to stop or start, here are a few suggestions. Quit smoking. Eliminate alcohol and caffeine and eat as clean a diet as you can. Foods with a lot of chemicals, like bacon, for example, or pesticides, may reduce sperm counts, so eating organic could help. Work out, but don't go overboard. Exercise is as close to a panacea as we have in the world, improving just about every area of our life. But a recent study found that exercising to the point of exhaustion may actually reduce sperm count. Plus, even if it has no effect, it might make you too tired to have sex, which would produce the same result. Keep cool. 
Sperm perform better in colder temperatures, which is why the testicles are located outside the body. That may explain why a disproportionate number of babies are born in August and September, roughly nine months after the coldest time of the year. Switching from those tidy whities to boxers may help. Briefs can lead to overheating, which decreases circulation and a drop in sperm count. Stay out of the sauna, too. You may also want to get cloth seat covers for your car and run the air conditioner on hot days. One fascinating study found that long-distance truckers who spend a lot of time with their testicles up against a hot seat have lower-than-average sperm counts and fertility rates. Wear a kilt. Men who do have better quality sperm and are more fertile, according to a study published in the Scottish Medical Journal. Where else would you expect a study on kilts to be done? Practice a lot. As men get older, the quality of their sperm goes down and the possibility of damaged DNA goes up. Saving it up for a few days might seem like a good idea, but men who ejaculate seven days in a row actually have less DNA damage than men who go several days without sex. Good luck. If you've got a question or a comment or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that through our website, mrdad.com. We love to hear from our listeners, and we try to address every question that we possibly can, either on the air or via email. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. But don't go anywhere because there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink. And you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. And you could do things that... Honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking, and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, it's Armin Brott. Thanks very much for staying with us for the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Over the past 35 years, the international mega best-selling parenting guide, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maislish has sold more than 3 million copies and received tons of accolades and awards. Over the years, Adele Faber's daughter Joanna and her childhood friend Julie King were doing workshops that were based on that famous book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen. And what they kept hearing over and over again from people in the workshops was, how do we talk so little kids, preschoolers, will listen? And so, by popular demand, Julie King and Joanna Faber put together a book called exactly that, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. She's got some concrete tools and proven tips that are going to help parents of preschoolers really navigate these incredibly common and frustrating challenges. Things like morning mayhem and bedtime battles, toothbrushing, lying, doctor visits, 
anger, your child's and your own, and a lot more. They even have sections on kids with special needs and sensory processing disorders. It's an approach that'll help little kids grow into self-reliant big kids who are cooperative and connected to their parents, teachers, siblings, and peers. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start diving into the whole topic of talking to little kids and getting to understand their feelings and what's going on inside their little heads when Positive Parenting continues right after this. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dickie Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Julie King, who's the co-author with Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children, Ages 2 to 7. Julie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about your youth, because you were having a, a life living not too far and being best friends with the daughter of somebody who's kind of become uh, fairly iconic here, Adele Faber who was the author of a book that I'm sure a lot of people have had, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Was there a lot of pressure on you to be kind of a guinea pig when you were growing up? Well, let me tell you the story. I met Joanna when I was six months old. Okay. And she was 10 months old. My parents had moved into a house in the suburbs shortly before I was born, so my mother didn't know very many people. And she saw another mother of, at that point, two little kids, roughly the ages of my brother and me, walking down the street. And she ran out and invited her in. <laughs> and that was Adele wow. Faber and her, at, you know, her oldest two. And that's how I originally met Joanna. She and I went to nursery school together. Actually, we went all the way through high school together. Wow. And when we were in nursery school, Adele took a child guidance group with the psychologist Haim Gannat. And she would talk to my mother daily, as my mother tells the story, and then they would try these techniques out on Adele and her three kids and my mom and her three kids. So I was, in fact, a guinea pig for this approach, um, although I didn't realize it until I was probably a teenager. Um, and I was in Joanna's house in and out a lot over the course of our friendship. And I remember seeing her mother and another mother of a boy who went to nursery school with us writing this writing a series of books including how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk and in the 80s they also wrote a book called siblings without rivalry and oh, i yeah. got to copy edit the book i think i found a comma out of place and felt very <laughs> proud of my my like i'm pretty sure that i interviewed her at one point for for that book siblings, for siblings without, without rivalry, rivalry. Yeah. yeah great yeah that was good so was it unnatural or natural or odd to kind of become the the torchbearer for the next generation because it's I mean it's such a classic book and the, and what you're you're not taking it and updating it but you're certainly basing it on the the classic that's right I started leading workshops based on the book after I had my first two kids um, the preschool where my oldest son 
went, was looking for a more than one time event to do with parents. And I had been studying group facilitation and group development. And I said, I know this workshop. I've never led it. Maybe I could do it. Um, that first group uh, met for eight weeks. And halfway through, everybody said, we can't learn this in eight weeks. You have to do another eight weeks. And we turned it into a support group that ended up meeting for four and a half years. Wow. And other people heard about it and started bringing me in um, schools and nonprofits and that sort of thing. And living rooms. I do a lot of living room workshops. So it wasn't something that I actually intended to do. Um, when I was younger, I actually went to law school and have a law degree um, <laughs> before this career took off. Um, so when I first started doing it, I thought, I don't want to tell people I'm some sort of expert because then they're going to be paying very close attention to every single thing I say, and I'm going to get much too self-conscious, and I'm not perfect. Um, so it took me a while to be willing to tell people, yes, I actually teach from this book, and this is what I do, and I'm a parent educator. And then you moved on. And then people started asking me, they started telling me, we need a book just for preschool ages, just for this two to seven age. Um, we love the book, but there's so many more situations that come up, and we don't know how to apply it. So I called Adele, and I, I said, I have your next book. And she said, oh, Julie, I'm tired. <laughs> you write it. So I called my friend Joanna, who at, was also leading workshops based on Adele's book at that point, and I said, we have to write this book. That was an embarrassing number of years ago, and we worked on oh. it for quite a while. Um, but now it's coming out. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So has thing, have things changed, and, and I mean, in, in the way that you talk to little kids? Because there's so many things that, that I talk about. You do a lot of interviews, obviously, with the show, that a lot has changed over the years in the way that you interact with teenagers or the way that you interact with teen boys or teen girls or certain know, with technology and all this stuff, but yeah. with preschoolers, certainly there's an, an element of technology that creeps in uh, towards the later end of preschool, hopefully. Yeah. But I is it different, the way that you need to talk to them and the way that you need to listen to them? Or are they pretty, are we, you know, is human development not really caught up with technology? I think, I think the basic principles, the communication principles of the how to talk approach are the same. Um, what's different are the challenges and the situations that parents are finding themselves in. So technology is one of those changes. And yes, I am seeing parents of preschoolers who are having to negotiate whether they can use the iPad, how long they can use the iPad, whether they can use my smartphone, that sort of thing. Um, and then parents are also, in my experience, much busier than they used to be 20 years ago. Yeah. We have way more parents, uh, way more families where there are two-parent families both parents are working or single parent families. Um, so parents seem to, in, in my experience, are, feel even more stretched than ever. They don't have time. People say they don't have time to read a book. So one of the reasons we wrote the book the way we did is um, we knew pa parents aren't going to sit down and just read through from front to back. Right. You're doing it kind of situationally. So as, we have yeah. the second half of the book is all short chapters. So if you want to know how to deal with morning morning madness you can turn to that chapter if you want to uh, figure out what to do about tattling there's a chapter on that um, so we've we've got a lot of short chapters on really common challenges and conflicts that come up in a lot of families good okay all right so let, let's take an example actually you know before we get into an example give us an example of the the basics of the how to talk approach because it, it's kind of a mirroring thing as I recall yes but Get, get to walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, just so we know, because I think it'll help to, uh, to get that yes. and get people back in touch with their, their earlier parenting years, and then we can get on to... 
So when I first started leading the workshop, I actually used the full title of the original book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. I was working with parents of preschoolers primarily, and they pretty much said to me universally, my kid talks a lot. I don't need to learn how to listen so my kids will talk. It's morning (laughs) till night. They don't stop. What I want to know is how to talk so kids will listen. And what I realized what they really meant was how to talk so kids will behave. We'll do what I tell them to do. We'll do what I say. (laughs) Right. So one of the big principles of the book, and uh, a lot is based on this, is that there's a connection between how kids feel and how they behave. There's, and there's a connection between how we talk to kids and how they feel. If you think about your experience as a parent when you're glad that uh, reality TV is not in your ho- house, you know, when you're yelling at your kids or saying some, some things that you later realize were not the most helpful, those often tend to be the times when you're in a rush or you're stressed or you had an argument with your boss or that sort of thing. Um, that's true for us as parents and it's true for our kids as well. And there's a connection between how we talk to our kids and how they feel. So if we want to maximize the chances of them behaving well, then we need to pay attention to how we talk to them so that we pay attention to how they feel and help them feel their best. So um, so the, the, the first principle that we talk about in the book is the importance of acknowledging feelings, the importance of putting into words how kids are feeling. Okay. And so well, g- give, it, give me an example of how that would work. I mean, you've got one here about brushing your teeth because I think that that there's going to be a lot of this when parents are going to say, I don't care about the feeling that goes here. <laughs> I just want this, you know, ABC to happen. I want you to put your shoes on. I, I you know, who, who cares what, what's going on in there? Just shut up and put, well, of course, you would hopefully not say that, but you know, basically the bottom line is shut up and put your shoes on. Right. It seems like the most efficient way to get a kid to do something is to tell them what you want them to do. Um, You'd think. You would think. And yet, if it were that simple, right, if it were that simple, we wouldn't need books like this. We would tell them what to do and they would go do it. But kids don't. Um, So so what I would do is I would walk you through um, first acknowledging that, oh, you are not in the mood to brush your teeth right now. You're in the middle of something. You don't want to stop. Okay. Now, for little kids, the next step has to be engaging them somehow because they don't understand why you need to brush your teeth every day. Like, I did that yesterday. I've mastered that. I'm not really as interested in that anymore. So your best strategy for little kids is to be playful. I've spent um, sessions with parents where we've brainstormed various ideas. I'm going to tell you one that I used with my kids when they were little because they, too, didn't want to brush their teeth, Um, which which came out of desperation one day when my daughter didn't want to brush her teeth. I said, do you know what? I heard that all the zoo animals have escaped and they're hiding in kids' teeth. Should we go look in your mouth and see if you have any? Well, she was <laughs> dying to go see. What did you know? What would we find? So she opened her mouth and I took a look and I said, oh, I think I see a giraffe. Oh my goodness, there's a lion on this side. Hold on, let me see if I can get it out. It was, I turned the whole thing into a game. Well, she loved it. And the next day when it was time to brush her teeth, you can guess what game we played again. Talking with Julie King, who's the co-author with Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about brushing teeth. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, 
I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Julie King, who's the co-author of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. So you were just talking about finding a giraffe in your daughter's mouth. Uh, how, how did that go? I mean, was, it seems like there's a difference in a, in a little kid's mind. Okay, so you found a giraffe. That doesn't mean you need to get it out, first of all, or that you need a toothbrush to get it out. Oh, well, I used the toothbrush to find it and to get it Oh, out. you did? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I had, okay. I had a, I had a, a goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the, my point is that being playful with, with kids of this age is your best go-to. I mean, we can give them information. We can tell them that keep your teeth healthy. We need to brush them every night. Um, but... For well, that, that doesn't kid. work with a teenager who doesn't want to brush her teeth. I <laughs> yeah. can't imagine how that's going to work with a four-year-old. Yeah. So the more you can make it something that's engaging, where you, they feel like they're having a good time with you. Um, and the added bonus is that for a lot of our parents who are so busy and have so little time with their kids, this is a way of turning chore time into a really nice connecting time. And is it something, though, that's sustainable? I mean, it seems like, you know, you were talking about everybody being busy and... That, that's that's an approach that sort of let's look for the animals in your mouth. That's something that is, I think is okay for somebody who's got leisure, leisure time. They're not rushed. They're not feeling any sort of pressure to do something. It's a, it's a creative approach. I'm not criticizing it in any way. I'm just saying that I think there's certain times where somebody would say, you know, I think I could try that out. And other times where it's just, God, I'm late. Let's go. Well, you know, I felt that way when my kids were, were little. Sometimes I felt like, why can't they just do it? Why do I have to make a big deal about it? But what I discovered is that when I would say, just do it, you have to do it now, they didn't necessarily do it anyway. And sometimes that I got more resistance, and it took longer than if I hmm. said, I think I hear your toothbrush calling. Asher, <laughs> Asher, I feel so lonely. Please come and chew on me. Oh, your toothbrush is calling you. A two-year-old or a three-year-old <laughs> is probably going to run up to that bathroom to get the toothbrush. Whereas when I say, it is toothbrush town, go now, I may or may not get that kid up. I've tried using force to get a kid's mouth open. I can tell you it's not a very effective <laughs> approach to, to getting their teeth brushed. So um, okay. so you're right. It, sometimes this does feel like, ugh, I don't have it in me, and we'll have to use some other strategies. This is, a, this is an approach that if you can get yourself to get in the, in, in the playful mood, it's often yeah. a faster way. Right. All right. So what about the feelings? Let's get back to that. How sure. how are we going to cause get them to express to us what the feelings are? And they're probably not going to do it in words that we would understand or in a way that we would understand it, articulating it, I mean. Yes, right. Um, sometimes we have to, we have to, I think of our, I think of it as we have to translate what our kids are saying and what they're showing us. Um, into the words that would describe how they're actually feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a mom in one of my groups who had a, she had two girls, and when, when she told us this story, they were four and six. 
her six-year-old had gone to a birthday party, and the four-year-old wasn't invited. The six-year-old was at that age where she could go alone to a birthday party. The four-year-old didn't quite understand that. Six-year-old comes home with a goodie bag, and she uh-huh. has two lollipops in her goodie bag, a red one and a pink one. And the little one, whose name was Sarah, says, I'm making up the names, by the way, to protect okay. the frazzled. <laughs> Sarah says, I want a lollipop. It's not fair that she got a lollipop. And the the older one says, oh, well, you could have the red one. Now, the mom thinks, oh, that is so nice of her. She's being so generous. She didn't have to do that. Guess what Sarah says? I don't want the, want the red one. I want the pink one. And the mom says to her, well, you, you should be grateful that you got any lollipop at all. She didn't have there to give you one. There's a word that just went over her head. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was so nice of her. You should you should say thank you. And the little one just started screaming and crying, and she ran to her room. And the mom thought to herself, oh, wait, what is that thing about acknowledging feelings? What was I supposed to do? So she went back to her room, <laughs> and she said, oh, Sarah, you really wanted to have a pink lollipop. You don't want the red one. You like the color pink. And she looked around the room. You have pink bedspread, and you have pink teddy bears. You really like the color pink. And Sarah came over and sat on her lap and leaned up against her, and they talked about the color pink for a few minutes. And then she she gave her you know her, her mom a hug and, and went downstairs and played with her older sister, and it was over. So the mom had to figure out what was going on, put into words what this girl felt. She wasn't saying to her, to her I don't like this. She just started screaming and crying. Um, but... And it doesn't always end that easily, you know. But no, by that's, putting that's a... into words what she felt, that girl felt like, oh, mom gets it. Yeah, I did want the pink one. I am disappointed. And she could she could work through it and let it go. Okay, so give us a couple other situations, I think. So, some some more test cases of how this, this, how this kind works. of thing works out. Yeah. Okay, well, when, another way to acknowledge feelings is to give kids their wishes in fantasy. Sometimes we can't give them what they want, but that doesn't mean we can't give it to them in fantasy. So um, I'm going to tell you a story about my oldest son when he was two. We took him to the Beta Breakers end of the race. um, And after the race was over, we got in the car and he was hungry and he wanted a banana, which I often had with me, but I didn't happen to have at that point. And of course, at first I say, I'm sorry, I don't have a banana. Do you want a cracker? No, I want a banana. I'm like, well, gosh, I don't have one. Maybe we can get one when we get home. I want one now. So finally, I remembered what I'm teaching in these workshops. (laughs) And I say, oh, Asher, I wish I had a banana for you. He says, I want a banana. I want one. I said, I wish I, you know what, Asher? I wish I didn't just have one banana. I wish I had a whole bunch of bananas. And he goes, oh, a bunch of bananas. I said, if we could have any kind of bananas, would you like to have a really ripe banana with brown spots, or do you like it just kind of yellow? And he thinks about it. I think I'd like yellow. And I said, or maybe we could have purple bananas or blue bananas. And suddenly we were having a whole conversation about fantastical bananas, and we had bananas on the roof. We had bananas all over the car, and we actually made it the 20-minute ride home (laughs) to the apartment (laughs) talking about bananas without him absolutely losing it. So that's okay. an example of giving him his wishes in fantasy. I didn't have a banana, but I gave it to him in fantasy. Okay, and so what's the thought there? What's the feeling behind that? Or, or can we? Can you make that connection also there? He really wanted something that he couldn't have. It's just very disappointing not to get something. It's frustrating when you have an idea in your head and you can't get it. So, 
All right, so that, that's kind of, there's kind of a theme of wanting something. Are, do kids have other needs, little kids this age, preschool? There's other needs besides wanting something. They have f- all kinds of feelings. They feel sad. They feel frustrated. They feel happy. Those, of course, th- when they feel happy, it's a lot easier to say, oh, you're so excited oh, yeah. to see your grandfather. Um, it's when they are scared. Oh, you didn't like that. You, that loud sound scared you. You didn't expect that. Um, so a- anytime they have any any feeling at all, it can be really helpful to put into words what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think for parents, it's a lot harder when the feelings are what we might call negative feelings, the feelings that we, we wish our di- kids didn't have to have when they're scared or frustrated or angry. Um, but even kids who have very little language can really be helped by us putting into words what they are feeling. So, you know, my, my daughter, when she was barely talking, was trying to reach the sink, and she's starting to go, uh, 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 you know, and I, I say, oh, Sherielle, you're frustrated. You want to reach the water. You're frustrated. And she said, frustrated, frustrated, <laughs> you know, and I think I, you know, I, I avert the temper tantrum by being able to say that's what you want. And of course, if it's something I can help with, I can say, what should we do? Yeah. Should we get the step stool? <laughs> should I pick you up? <laughs> yeah. All right. We only have about a minute left, but give, give me just an idea of the, the biggest challenge that you come across, the question that you get from parents most often. Okay, so one question they'll ask me is, it, when I when I acknowledge their feelings, does it mean I have to give them what they want? You oh, know, that's a good question. If if yeah. they say they want candy for dinner, and I say, <laughs> oh, you really want candy for dinner, well, then aren't they going to think I'm going to give it to them? And I think there's a real distinction between acknowledging their feelings and giving in to what they want um, or right. approving of their behavior. So even a kid who's who's hit his brother and is really mad at him, and you say, oh, you're so mad at him, you wanted to hit him. I can't let you hit. We need to tell him in words. That made me mad. I want to turn. So I I want parents to know that there's a big distinction between acknowledging their feelings and approving of their behavior. So there's a point where you can say, yes, but. Yeah, I understand you want a banana, and there are blue bananas, and I'd like to have one growing out of my forehead, (laughs) but I just don't happen to have a banana here. Yeah, but watch your butts. I always tell ki- parents, watch your butts. Okay. If you say, yes, I know you want that, but you can't have it, I've taken it away oh, too quickly. Oh, you just shot it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's much better to say, I know you want that. Ugh, what should we do? We can't eat that for dinner. Okay. No butts. Watch your butts. <laughs> All right. Julie King, co-author with Joanna Faber of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.